So our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 5, 1 to 12. I invite you to follow along in your Bible or in your electronic device. And now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside. And sat down. His disciple came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Agnes. I always look forward to her participation. For sure, she's my favorite worship leader. I'll just be honest with you from right, right up front. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It's not even a competition whatsoever. Eric, I always appreciate your prayers. Um, you know, we're, we're a church that's certainly a little bit smaller than others uh, on a scale, although all around the world, people are worshiping in smaller groups, uh, five or six uh, huddled together, maybe in, in fear of some form of persecution. One of the advantages to being smaller, too, is I, I, I hope that we feel a little bit more like family. And certainly as we pursue our vision, too, that's an important aspect of what it looks like. We long to become a multi-ethnic church of influence. And that can happen without long-term relationships of sacrifice. So I'm grateful for the, each one of you who are committed to that. Uh, and also, it affords me the chance at the smaller church to single somebody out, Ilya Thomas. Ilya is back here right now in, the, in this corner, and I've asked him to come and to preach in a few weeks. I think October 24, he's slated to, to do that. Uh, he's giving some fresh leadership to the Mosaics Cincy Network that is just become a 501c3 in the not-too-distant past, and something that kind of sprung from some informal conversations about not just church planting, but church planting with a vision like Redeemers, some of the unique challenges that come along with it, and the learnings that are a very steep learning curve for me too, and it's never going to stop. Um, so I just said, hey, Ilya, will you come, come preach someday? He said, let me, let me do that, and maybe I'll swing in and just kind of see what I'm getting into uh, beforehand. So now he's got a little glimpse of, of that, and I just wanted to make sure that you knew that's what Ilya was. I don't know if you can join us for lunch. We'd love to have you uh, if you have that flexibility. Well, today we're finishing our 
look at the, the Beatitudes, not the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, though. We're looking at Matthew 5 through 7. This message is dealing with the longest of the Beatitudes in verses 10 through 12, where Jesus talks about the blessings that come with persecution. I don't know for how many people uh, it's true, uh, just to put that verse back up there, but when you make something like a Christmas list, I mean, believe it or not, October, November, December, it's coming on, coming up. Uh, usually, as a parent, we've got four kids. We say, what do you want for Christmas? Or maybe even you swap that list with a spouse. How many of you have ever put persecution down on the, on the list? I'm looking forward to that. Just a little bit of persecution might be sort of nice, but um, that's, that's not something we typically look forward to. And yet Jesus in this passage links to it not just blessing like we've been seeing along the way, but actually reward. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, but when you're insulted and when people say falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me. And more than that, rejoice and be glad. You can rejoice and be glad when persecution comes your way because of me. And that is a little bit of a counterintuitive response to persecution. I don't like it in any form. I haven't experienced much of it, but I can tell you it's not something that my natural response is joy and gladness when it comes my way. And yet Jesus here says there's something like an honored status when you receive that. You have to remember there were people who've gone before you and he's called his disciples together. He's on the front end of his ministry saying, this is what it's going to look like to walk in my ways. Other people have gathered around. That's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to a crowd, especially to his disciples, saying, you're going to be blessed if you're persecuted. Because you have to remember there are people who've gone before you who also experienced that persecution. And we look back at them with some sort of status, that, a little bit of status, that says they were prophets. They were speaking God's word to a culture that often rejected it. And you're like them, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad. I'm guessing the disciples would have to remember this as time goes on. And when Jesus dies and he's raised again, we were singing about that, but then the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them to face times of persecution. When so many of the people gathered around would die literally for their faith, they'd be martyred as witnesses to the reality of this Christ whom they're listening to right now. I've had the chance to be in a few contexts where people have experienced persecution that is, is you don't have to do some mental gymnastics to call it persecution. It's clear persecution for their faith. And I, I have in my mind's eye uh, another picture of sweating with just a small group of people who seem to have more joy than I've experienced in a long time. And making a comment, too, about some of it, it was kind of a, a backdoor experience uh, with a pastor and, and another leader and just a handful of people. And I made some comment about some of the hardships. And this person said, but we're so blessed. And it just struck me that that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. And it wasn't said in a way that's kind of fake sometimes, like, oh, yeah, all blessing to God. And you seething inside because you feel gypped or something. This is, this is genuine joy. And it just struck me 
Because my joy is sucked out of me so often by the basic trials of life. And persecution, at the very least, will put things in perspective. I mean, the things that I get frustrated about that I think about even this morning, I was thinking, if I were actively being persecuted, this would mean nothing to me. You know what that's like when somebody has a death. There have been some in this congregation. It changes your perspective on things, doesn't it? Stuff that seemed to matter so much just doesn't matter as much anymore. And persecution tends to do the same thing. It reorients us. And Jesus knows that. Because otherwise, we become so infatuated with this world that's in front of us that we're grasping for more of what we have that gives us satisfaction. And that's not ultimately going to do it. Persecution can be a perspective provider for sure. And some of you may know that firsthand. Some of you come from countries that are experiencing that right now. And I'm guessing if I open the microphone up, you could share stories, not maybe from your own life, but certainly of people you know, brothers and sisters who are experiencing this right now. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Well, who's blessed? Jesus says, people who are blessed in this context, this final of the Beatitudes, are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And righteousness is a very often used word in the Bible from the Old Testament into the New Testament. It has some different nuances, some different ways of understanding it. But on the whole, righteousness deals with doing the right things for the right reasons in the right way. If you're persecuted because you are proud and arrogant, you won't get this blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In fact, blessed are the poor in spirit. That was the first beatitude, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what it seems like Jesus is doing with this beatitude is we've been talking about a lot. It's he's telling you, you want to sign up to follow me? You need to think like a citizen of heaven. Your citizenship, you, you pull out your card, you go through, you know, the, the, the immigration or something like that, is in heaven. And this is what it looks like to be a citizen in heaven. The values are completely different. They're upside down. They actually don't make a lot of sense. But why should it? Because you've got people living just for this world and those with an eye to heaven as it's burst into this kingdom and this is how we're going to live. If you don't look differently, maybe you need to check your card and your citizenship again. And so it's odd, but should be odd to others that persecution itself is a blessing, but not because you're mean. If you're persecuted because you're verbally harsh and vindictive and vengeful, you won't get this, bless this blessing. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. If you're persecuted because you are unforgiving, and you harbor bitterness, and you refuse to let go of offenses until you're fully repaid, you won't get this blessing. Blessed are the merciful. Remember the debt that was forgiven? The, the debt so vast beyond what we could possibly imagine. That's you if you're in Christ. And yet you go out and look for others to repay the small debts by comparison that you're owed. If you're persecuted because you stir up strife and you look for opportunities to oppose others out of unfettered anger or just because you're not a nice person, 
you won't get this blessing. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. This is for people who are persecuted for righteousness, right actions with right motive, right attitudes for the right reasons, according to whom? This isn't where you get to write your own job description and say, this is what righteousness looks like. And since I believe that's true, if you don't, I'm going to bring the heat to you. And if I get persecuted, it just justifies that I was right to begin with. You know, people can do that. They look for person. I'm being persecuted, therefore I'm right. Are you being persecuted for the right thing? And th this is where we start doing a lot of like convincing ourselves like, well, yeah, of course. I've drawn a little circle. Everything in it that I'm standing in is right. And the things that I believe in, the things that matter to me, if they don't matter as much to you, you're not right. And I'm being persecuted because you're giving me the evil eye. Or you don't understand. Or you don't even try to understand. No, this is a different kind of persecution because of righteousness. So the persecution exists not because you think you're right, but because the kingdom of heaven itself is at odds with any other system that serves a different king. And guess what? That could be you. You could be the one who said, I'm king. And you're at odds with the kingdom of heaven. The system of the world around us, an easy target in churches all around the United States and the world right now. Yeah, it's opposed to the system that Jesus is talking about right here. And so if you adopt it, it's no wonder that if you begin even living out these beatitudes with, with the greatest of intention, it's going to rub up against others the wrong way. There's going to be some friction. That's true with systems of faith, too. We believe pretty strongly that Jesus is king, that there's one true God, and he was expressed and wrapped in flesh when he burst into this world in the person of Christ. And the way you get to heaven is through him. There's only one way, Acts 5.12, to heaven. It's, it's through, through Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. These aren't my words. These are his. There's only one way to get to heaven. That is at odds with other systems of faith. A kingdom implies a king, and the Bible says in a straightforward fashion, that's Jesus. In fact, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Who's the king? I'm installing my king on Zion, the holy city, God says, and that's who Jesus is. And in that kingdom, if Jesus is king, guess what? He sets the rules. They're good and they're just. They're a place where we can all thrive, but others assert themselves as king in opposition. And that's, that's ultimately where persecution enters. Jesus says your love for him must be prior above all else, sometimes even in the context of family. It's strange because blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, but then he said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. <laughs> and he says, because I am the king. And that will bring friction if you live that out. But you need to make sure that he is placed in that center. And there can be division. One of my good friends back when I was in seminary, Jayant Moda, was a Brahman, the highest priestly caste in India. And his father served as a priest in their temple. And they worshipped Hanuma. Some of you probably recognize some of, some of that too. And his brother became a Christian. 
And it made Jay so mad. In fact, he prayed and vowed that he would see his brother die. Do you think you got family conflict? You probably got some. This guy was so serious about his faith, which rejected somebody saying, Christ is the one true king whom I will serve. And guess what? That claim is on you as well. And Jay said, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. This guy was intense. World-renowned parasitologist. Traveled all around the world, was set on making sure his brother would die. Long story cut short, Jesus appeared to him in several dreams. He becomes a believer. <laughs> That's a very long story short. <laughs> and God, in dreams, burst into his life and said, what your brother said is real. In fact, it's one of those stories where he saw some scenes from the book of Revelation and finally called his brother up and said, hey, look, I, I, I don't understand this stuff, but I think this is from the Bible. Uh, maybe, I don't know, here's the dream. And Jimmy and his brother said, yeah, that's from Revelation 7 or whatever it was. And he read it. And Jay didn't know what to do with that, except he came ultimately to faith in Christ. Now, a wonderful man of faith. Still a scientist, world-renowned, and preaching in churches on Sundays, telling them there's one true God who's the king, and this is how you live your life for his glory. And he's faced persecution for it. Because the kingdom of heaven's at odds with any other system that serves a different king. But we see that there's, there is tremendous blessing in the midst of it. That those who are persecuted receive, according to this text, something. The kingdom of heaven in verse 10, but a great reward in heaven also. And the assurance that they're not alone. So in a sense, this passage, like so much of the Beatitudes, looks ahead to something to come. You know, when we're comfortable in this world, why do we need heaven? But it's not just looking ahead, a hope for the future. There's the reality. They need to know that you're not alone now. And people went before you, but the implication is, too, there's others who are suffering as well. You're not alone. Even if you feel alone sometimes, when you enter into the family of God, you're not alone ever. You've got all kinds of mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, and you thought you'd finally escaped yours. Here we are. And the beauty, I think, too, of pursuing a vision like ours is a lot of these stories aren't so remote. They're, they can be in our midst. And these brothers and sisters, if you read these stories, and even when I was in that one setting, they had a, a, an idea, a, a tangible grasp that what mattered most was the kingdom of heaven. And I'm getting it even as I'm persecuted. I'm experiencing it in a way that those who aren't persecuted simply never will. A different level of what it means to walk with Christ as king. They alone have a unique experience of the kingdom that exists now, a deeper interaction with the presence of the king than those who face persecution, never face persecution, just won't have. And, and this isn't just a theory. I mean, this is throughout the Bible as well. I mean, consider, for example, Hebrews chapter 11, this hall of faith, as they call it, where the author says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. This is all the stuff that's awesome. I mean, this is like comic book type stuff, it sounds like. like that sounds pretty cool. Wouldn't it be neat if you were able to tell your kids, yeah, one time stopped the mouth of a lion. Just coming at me, and I said, in the name of Jesus, stop. And I just started licking my face, and we rolled around for a little bit, and then I walked on. And that sounds nice, but that's not totally what happened all the time. Read on. Though they became mighty in war and put foreign armies to, fight, to flight, women received back their dead from resurrection. Amazing, but here we go. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They had a future hope that there was a reward coming. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. That line slays me every time. The world was not worthy of these people. Even though the world said, you mean nothing, and I'm persecuting you. They actually, they were beyond the scope of this world. The world isn't even worthy of that type of person. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. We're a part of that storyline. They didn't receive in full what they were looking forward to. And we're a part of it because there's something happening as God is building his family and crescendoing into something great to come. But they did suffer in time and space. These aren't just words on a page. These are stories. These are faces. These are men and women and children. And the reason they could endure such treatment is because they were living for a different kingdom. They had a different king. They weren't just, when they, if they were listening to the Beatitudes today, they wouldn't say, that just sounds like nice words on a page. Let's go have our lunch already. <laughs> They're like, yes, this is it. This is what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What I hunger for is not just great Indian food. But righteousness, I long for the face of God. And if I'm persecuted because of that, fine. Because I get what matters most to me. It's not a full stomach. It's fellowship with God. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted. In Hebrews 12, 28, he gives a, an idea of why these people could even get there. And he says, we are receiving, even those of us, by the way, who haven't resisted to the point of shedding any blood yet, <laughs> he says, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And because that's the case, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That's what I felt like I experienced in that upper room. Somebody, some people, simple who knew they were receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. So they're thankful. This is the right response, even in the midst of persecution. 
Their values, responses, goals, choices, all shaped by love for and service of the living God who'd rescued them. So that's some serious persecution. Does this kind of stuff still exist today? And for some of us who may not be totally aware of it, I mean, with social media, you probably know some of this already. But the answer is absolutely yes. According to Open Doors in just the last year, there have been over 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination, 4,761 Christians killed for their faith for identifying as a follower of Christ, 4,488 churches and other buildings attacked, 4,277 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. By the Department of State's report, Christians in over 60 countries face genuine persecution due to their faith. On a scale from number one, the most uh, down to, to the uh, in descending levels of persecution, the top 10 countries are North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, India. It exists. And perhaps you see it, and I think those of you who are closer to it or have experienced it know that it's a very true reality. I mean, for us in the United States, our level of persecution tends to be, do we get a 501c3 status still in tax deduction from giving on a Sunday morning? And, 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 and if not, maybe I'll stop giving. I, I don't know if any of you actually think that, but I suspect there are some who do. And okay, maybe that feels like a little bit like persecution. We're talking about people who are being beaten for their faith. This exists. And I, sometimes I get so overwhelmed. I, what, what can I do about it? I mean, do I run across the Walmart right now and say, Jesus Christ is Lord and King? Now persecute me if you will for that. I mean, it's an option. I suppose, and some of you may, may be of the mind to do that. Come back and report. I'd be interested in hearing what happens. <laughs> Maybe we could try that as an experiment. Let's just all rush over there, everybody fill an aisle at one time and say, I suppose. But it's a little bit like, you know, when, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, he says, like, you know, fall off, jump off this roof, see if God saves you. Well, that's, that's just plain foolish, Jesus says. <laughs> you don't do that. You're kind, kind of twisting things. You're not, you're not seeking it out in that respect. So what about us? Because I think for most of us, maybe we feel a little distanced or overwhelmed by it. So perhaps uh, today when we look at this passage and you say, well, I'm not immediately persecuted, and you might be. Uh, maybe we need to think as a first step, uh, if we're not among the persecuted, about maybe identifying with them on some level. Because I think that begins to shape the way we think about stuff. And this isn't just something that I've come up with. I mean, the, the scriptures talk about this as well. There's a clear injunction to spend time at least in reflection on this reality. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. This is the body of Christ. And we've talked about some of that even in, in the American context before too, what it looks like. One part suffering, we all suffer. But this is a global perspective, too. One part of our body suffering, 
all of the, all the body suffers. You know, it, it is quite striking to me. I've lived long enough where all of a sudden you, your, your, your pinky starts hurting. And you don't realize how much you use your pinky. Some obscure place in your body starts, starts like pulsating or something like, wow, all you can think of is that all the time. And it seems so irrelevant. And so when you look at these things, that's kind of what's happening is there's a part hurting. And the scope, the capacity for us to enter into that hurt as if it were our, our own, frankly, it's limited, right? I have limited capacity. One of the great dangers might be able to, for us to think we can enter into everybody's story 100%. You're not Christ. <laughs> you can't do that. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that you don't put yourself in a position to experience it when you can. And, and I think especially in the context, again, of family and church. But even broader than that, we need to be aware of it. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. I don't know. I like a party better than a funeral. If I'm going to rejoice, let's party. Although I will say funerals are often where we think about eternal things. You can't deny death as a reality any longer. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. And, you know, how do you do something like that? Here's just a couple of ideas. I think one, maybe today or sometime this week, visit one of these sites that at least allows you to get some information and perhaps moves the emotions a little bit. And to, to, it could transfer into something that you actually do about it, whether it's contributing some funds or praying on a regular basis. Open Doors is one. Voice of the Martyrs. Each of these with a story is another. International Justice Mission. Uh, a great agency doing some good work all around the world. Or China Partnership. You know, Ryan Zhang preached here a handful of weeks ago as well. He's actually on staff with China Partnership. Uh, he spends Fridays translating materials from English to Chinese and Chinese to English. And a lot of these are stories and resources of Chinese brothers and sisters who are facing persecution. Read some of the resources there. If you want to know what, it, what message is coming from a pastor who's experiencing real persecution. That's one thing you can do. If you're a reader, read some books. You know, Fox's Christian Martyrs of the World by John Fox. is kind of a standard that it just tells the story of uh, martyrs. Martyrs is from the Greek martyreo, actually from Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses, martyreo, to, to, to the ends of the earth, starting with where you are right now. That's what this is all about. People who've given their lives for the sake of the gospel. Or if you're more of a novel kind of person, Safely Home is Randy Alcorn's treatment of, uh, in, in novel form of the Chinese church house churches, and some of the persecution that's been faced there as well. But perhaps the, uh, the, the most, I mean, the, the, the best way to go forward is to befriend somebody who has been persecuted. And I, I'm not talking about getting on a plane to Afghanistan tomorrow, necessarily, but they exist in our midst as well. You know, ne next week, uh, Monir and Samia will be here in their ministry, Call of Love, 
which is to Muslims around the world, Muslims around the world. There are some in our own midst who live in this area who've experienced significant persecution. And they're just, if you ask Samia, a phone call away to have around your dinner table and say, tell me your story. And when, when that happens, something might change in you to identify a little bit more with this brother or sister in Christ who's experienced tremendous persecution. And at the end of the day, any enthusiasm you have for supporting the persecuted, it's not going to prevail if it's motivated by guilt. If you're like, man, I just feel terrible because I haven't done this. I feel guilty. Uh, guilt can be a motivator. It's worked as motivation for thousands of years. It's not the biblical primary motivation, though, is it? Any strength that you might come by in the face of it is a direct byproduct of your zeal for Christ and his empowering you by his spirit. Your passion for God's kingdom, his glory, for obedience to his call, your grasp of the all-consuming grace and immersion in the love of God is the only enduring motivation for any of this. That's the only thing that will warm a cold heart if we're apathetic, loosen tight lips about the gospel, and inspire lifelong surrender and action. So that if you are in that position again, where the opportunity for persecution exists, there's not a calculation going on of what do I lose in your head. It's just a natural response that comes from an organic relationship with the God who saved you. What else could I do? It does, at least in my mind, every now and then I'll ask the question of myself, you know, why am I not being persecuted because of righteousness? If I'm not, why? Why aren't we persecuted because of righteousness? And some of you may feel like we are, and we could have a conversation about whether or not we're actually persecuted. And, and, and it's a sliding scale, I understand, but why aren't we? And by we, I mean the American church. That's where we are in the United States of America. And by we, I mean Redeemer Church. And by we, I mean you. <laughs> and by we, I mean me. <laughs> And I don't know, we could have a conversation about that. Why, why isn't it? But as I was thinking about it, here are some ideas I'm asking, I'm saying for myself. I think my love for Christ is just too small. I don't know. Do I really love Christ? It's my affection for him so astounding. I don't care what happens to me. He matters most. I'm speaking for myself again. I fear of, my fear of man is too big. <laughs> Love for Christ too small? Fear of man too big? Concerned for? Implications? How does somebody think about me? Or what will be lost if I stand up? Because of righteousness. My affection, perhaps our affection for comfort, it's just too dominating. You know, I'm middle class, and most of you are too. Not, not everyone, I know. It feels kind of comfortable sometimes. It's kind of nice to have a, kind of nice to have a retirement plan, maybe for some of you. And you got your, you're working towards your goals with your Fidelity investment guy. And so in 2008, when all that got taken away, 
or something like that. Yeah, it's a real loss. But what kingdom are you living for? I mean, I'm kind of comfortable. I, I think a lot of times of, you know, Andrew Peterson has this masked song on one of his albums for this gal who's in a third world country, and he's kind of mourning in, in a certain level the, the reality of living in a place where he has plenty because he doesn't stop to wonder if heaven's really better than what I got right now. I mean, don't some of us sometimes feel like, you know, Jesus, wait for a little bit because the cruise is coming. <laughs> and when you're persecuted, there's, there's, you're like, Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Come, trial, suffering, death, persecution. Come, Lord Jesus, they orient us toward what matters most. But when we're comfortable, that stuff can easily be put aside. Perhaps our belief in God's work is just too anemic. And we don't believe that God actually can work in the midst of these circumstances. Because, and again, this has to do with having resources. I've got a fallback plan, a safety net. And when you're on those front lines and you've got nothing, God is the only safety net you have. <laughs> and you know you're blessed in the midst of that very persecution because your reliance is not on what you've done, but on who he is. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know God could save them. But even if he doesn't, I'm all in to the point of burning to death. I mean, mind-boggling. I don't really, there may be moments when I'm there, but I mean, kind of like, I don't know. There's a giant asterisk to my face sometimes. A lot of fine print. Maybe our desire to exercise faith is too weak. I mean, don't you realize when you're put into these positions, your faith is strengthened. Anybody who goes to the gym and lifts weights understands. It's uncomfortable but you're stronger on the back end. The soreness is an indication that there's been some work that's done. And so it hurts, but your faith is exercised. You're strengthened. That's a physical analogy that applies to the spiritual realm. And so much of what Jesus is saying applies to both. The fact is that potential increase in persecution is really not a bad outcome altogether. As long as we're being persecuted for righteousness. The persecuted grow in their love for Christ, fear God more than man, depend on God to work, constantly exercising their faith. Church historians sometimes suggest that 313 was the darkest moment in Christian history. Do you know what happened then? Constantine declared that Christianity was the religion of the empire. And, uh, you know, Tertullian before that said, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church grows when persecuted. And you know what happens when you have a government system that says it's good to be a Christian? All of a sudden it's easy to be a Christian. And that's why church historians say the church was persecuted and grew. And it grew because those who were aligning with it really believed. Because there was a cost associated with it. And then when it said stamped as the official religion of the empire, Christianity's in. 
then everybody benefits, even financially, from being a Christian. Now you get the permits to open up your business and to sustain your living. And beforehand, you couldn't. Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness. And one of the things that we need to remember in closing, in the midst of all this, we've got a king with a king, you know, a kingdom with a king. We have to remember that the king himself suffered persecution. This is wildly distinctive among world religions, by the way, as we talk about competing faiths. In Christianity, you have a God who didn't just create and say, now worship me, serve me. He came to serve us in the flesh. And not just serve in some sort of remote way, like a waiter saying, how can I serve you some meals? But service to the point of dying on a cross. We sang about that too. I mean, he suffered profoundly. He knew exactly what it was like to be insulted and persecuted. You know, maybe these disciples were saying at that point, and they hadn't seen it, you're asking us to do something, but are you going to do it also? And he on the cross took on the weight of all of their sin, all of your sin. And even when he was being insulted and mocked at that point when, frankly, if it were me on the cross and I had the powers that he has, lasers would come from my eyes. You know, like some, I don't know, some scene out of Guardians of the Galaxy. And everyone just goes down and I'm the only one left. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Whoa. He's living out these beatitudes. He's, you don't have somebody going before you saying, do as I say. You know, not as I do. He did it. And he suffered unjustly. You think you're being unjustly persecuted? Jesus, how much sin did he have? None. He didn't deserve to be persecuted, but he leaned into it. Because people like me and you were in his mind. He knew the only way that we could have the fellowship and know him as king is if he himself, the king, dies. He suffered persecution. So Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I don't know, Christmas list anyone again? You get to follow in Jesus' steps. But the important part there too is Christ suffered for you. And if you, if you grasp that, then something like Philippians 1.29 will have a little bit more weight as well. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. That's part of your job description. And sometimes I wonder, in light of that, how much have I suffered for Christ? I mean, really. Not much. One of my preaching professors used to talk about Philippians 3.10 a lot. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, period. That's what most people want. How awesome to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. Yeah. He said, he, of course, he was from a different country. He said, you Americans hate the next part of this verse. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. 
I want, Paul says, to know the fellowship, a fellowship, it seems, that can only come in sharing his sufferings. Am I willing? Really? God, make me if I'm not. But remember the point. It is Christ who bore in his body the ultimate persecution, even where we might lack. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's the great exchange, right? Christ was perfect and he took on our account. He become unrighteous, not treated by God as somebody who didn't do the right things for the right reasons in the right way. So that you, when he looks at you, are the righteous Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Even where you fail because of what Christ has done, you're accepted. And so when we come before God and we die, and we all have a date with that, are you going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Not because you supported the persecuted church the most, but because you trusted in the one who was persecuted for you, Christ. And that as we unpack that a little bit more and begin to understand it, becomes our motivation, doesn't it, for wanting to do the same and for being willing to suffer as we stand up for what is right, not because we think it is, but because God has told us it is. Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to celebrate communion. And this is a little slice of heaven. We're told that when we take communion, we're looking back at what Christ did, his suffering on the cross. We're remembering now in the present that he is with us. It's a sustaining grace, we call it. It's a constant reminder that we are one body baked together. So what a great opportunity to ask God to move in our hearts to align our sadness, our emotions, too, with those who are suffering persecution. It's a fitting thing to do. But it also reminds us that we're proclaiming he's coming again. And we look forward to the day when he returns, past, present, and future. The one who bears the marks comes to make all things right. And there will be no more persecution. That's happening as we celebrate this table. If you're a child of God, if you've trusted Christ by faith said, yes, this is me. And you're trusting in him not because you've earned it, but because you know Christ himself has done everything for you. Then this table's for you.